You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mark Miller, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. On Earn and Invest, we spend a lot of time talking about how to accumulate wealth, invest, and then use that money as a tool to live a better, more fulfilled life. When we talk of funding retirement, we often insert the word early just before it. The idea is we are toggling between an abundance of assets and a scarcity of time. Yet, For the majority of Americans, the situation is exactly the opposite. Money is scarce and longevity is often not adequately planned for. To address these issues, the U.S. government has created a number of programs to lessen the economic hardships of aging. Today, we welcome Mark Miller to talk about two of them, Social Security and Medicare. While his new book, Retirement Reboot, is just about the best and most clear-eyed version of managing retirement that I've read... I'm going to focus on his last chapter dedicated to what he calls social insurance. Although you might not immediately see yourself in this discussion, I urge you to listen in anyway. While Social Security or Medicare seem like far-off benefits that you may or may not actually receive, I must remind you of two points. One, you're likely paying for them anyway. And two, the health of our country's most at-risk populations will ultimately affect your bottom line whether you realize it or not. Mark Miller is a journalist, author, and podcaster who is a nationally recognized expert on trends in retirement and aging. His writing offers a holistic view of retirement security, including healthcare and Medicare, social security, retirement investing, midlife careers, and housing. His new book, Retirement Reboot, Common Sense Financial Strategies for Getting Back on Track, hits shelves January 10th, 2023. Mark Miller, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I'm going to focus here on the last chapter of your book. You make the point of saying that those who decry expansion of Social Security and Medicare mistakenly call them entitlements. Why is this a misnomer? Yeah, I'd be happy to address that. Uh, I do do want to just nitpick one thing you said in the intro, Jordan, and thanks for having me. You, You said that I call these programs social insurance, which actually gets at one of the points of the chapter. I don't call it social insurance. That's what these programs have been called since the Social Security was passed in the 1930s. Uh, unfortunately, it's a phrase, though, that has fallen into disuse. And so it's uh, not surprising to me that the phrase would be uh, put into my mouth. But, uh, you know, it's a, it, actually I read a study once of the mentions of social insurance, the phrase in major media, you know, tracking it back to the 1940s. And you could see that it was a phrase that was very commonly used in the first 
couple decades of social insurance, but is not very widely used anymore. And basically what it really refers to is the idea of social, meaning um, as a society doing something together to insure, as opposed to something that's commercial. And so, um, you know, the chapter is titled Toward a New Social Insurance Era. I'm eager to kind of rekindle interest in this idea. But, you know, the, the, the entitlement phrase, so technically speaking, Yes, Social Security and Medicare are from a legal standpoint, what is referred to in federal law as an entitlement, meaning that once you know it's been legislated, it's not subject to uh, the annual whims of legislators to say, well, we want to pay benefits this year or, or we don't. Although actually that's been proposed a couple of times um, just in the last year by a couple of Republican senators, notably Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who's actually said, well, we ought to just kind of make appropriation decisions on these programs each year. The problem with the phrase is that it's come into kind of common uh, understanding to be equal to something like a handout or a giveaway uh, or or welfare. And um, I'm always at pains to point out that Social Security and Medicare are not welfare programs, they're earned benefits. And if you stop and think about this, the difference is really important. A welfare benefit is something that you uh, obtain as a result of need, you know, low income, you need food stamps, for example. Social security benefits are earned, meaning you can't get them unless you have at least 10 years of, of work history and paying, making your, your premium contributions through the, the FICA tax. And the benefit amounts are determined, again, not by need, but based on your wage history. So the, the program is geared to replace a certain amount of your pre-retirement income. Generally on average, it's uh, about 40%. And the same with Medicare, the, you know, the benefits are, are not awarded or determined by need. Again, you have to have 10 years of contributions, premium contributions via the Medicare FICA tax. Uh, and the the benefit award has nothing to do uh, with your need. Everybody receives a standard benefit. So that's the way reason I kind of pick apart the the term entitlement. And I think you made this point. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Often welfare is something that we end up creating for the people who are already poor in a sense, whereas Medicare, Social Security actually are put in place so that people don't get to that point in the first place. Well, social insurance, I mean, you know, social security is envisioned as kind of the bedrock of retirement security. And for most Americans, it's the most important benefit uh, for about half. It's going to be, you know, the only source of income. So, you know, it, people describe it as an anti-poverty program, which is kind of true and and a little bit not. Um, certainly, and I, I get into the details of this in the chapter, uh, when Social Security was created in the 1930s, poverty among the elderly population was actually quite high. And, you know, I, I talk about the history of what were called as the poor houses. Uh, they're actually, you know, these days it's just a phrase people talk toss around like, oh, you're driving me to the poor house. And they use that phrase without necessarily even knowing or understanding that that really was a thing. You know, you can find it in the histories. Um, you can find all over America, you'll find roads that are called poor house road. They were basically kind of work farms that um, where the poor went and a lot of elderly people who couldn't rely on family members for support wound up in these places. And so 
you know, one of the reasons I have such great admiration for Social Security as a public policy achievement is that it's achieved a really stunning decline in elder poverty rates from something like 40% before the program began to about 9% now. Uh, Notably, the poverty rate just ticked up a little bit last year among seniors for the first time in many years, which is a interesting and very concerning development. But so yes, uh, Social Security has had the effect of reducing poverty rates. But, you know, to describe it strictly as an anti-poverty program today wouldn't be accurate. You know, Social Security has been amended hundreds of times since it was created, uh, expanded, tweaked, improved uh, to the point now where, you know, it's a very meaningful benefit for people up and down the income spectrum. You know, Uh, I often hear from people who have more affluence that they don't expect Social Security to be important to them in retirement. And, you know, maybe that's true for the very wealthy, but um, for many people who have achieved a reasonable amount of success in saving for retirement, you know, you mentioned the issue of longevity in your your introduction, Jordan, and, um, you know, people can run out of those savings if they reach a very advanced age. And Social Security will still be there for them as a, you know, guaranteed lifetime benefit. You know, you talk to financial planners about this who say, well, oh, I have clients who worry about the future of Social Security. So they want me to run their plans without Social Security. And so they do that for them. And when clients see the results, they kind of blanch and go, okay, never mind, put it back in because the plans collapse. So you know, it's it's a really profoundly important program for most Americans. You know, the probably the only exception would be this kind of the super rich. I want to expand on that conversation a little bit before we get to this idea of actually broadening these programs, which is what this last chapter argues. You know, there are many people, especially politicians, who say, look, America can't afford this anymore. They say Social Security, Medicare, it is way too costly is this true? I mean, we're every few years we we hear about how Social mm-hmm. Security is going to go bankrupt, about how we don't have enough for Medicare. Right. Is this the reality of our situation? No, you know, it's really a question of values rather than affordability. Social Security right now, if you look at the expenditures as a percentage of GDP, it's about 5%. It's projected to peak at about 6% with the the height of the the kind of the age boom in the country and then start coming back down again. And and keep in mind that when we talk about that spending, we're still we're talking about dollars that have been contributed by people throughout their working lives. Medicare is an interesting and slightly different situation, although I would still say that it's a question of, of values and how we want to provide health care uh, more than it is a, a matter of cost. The the rising cost of Medicare, in my view, is really just a mere reflection of the broader issues in our in our healthcare economy, which you know you're very familiar with as a as a healthcare professional. Um, and Medicare's finances are interesting and different than Social Security's in a couple of ways. So where Social Security is an entirely uh beneficiary paid program through FICA, in Medicare, FICA is funding only one part of the program, which is part A hospitalization. Uh, the rest of it is paid through um, a combination of premiums that you pay when you're enrolled on the one hand and uh, general revenue from the government. So there's an exposure there to for the federal federal budget in part B, which is outpatient services part and part D, 
which is prescription drug coverage that is different than what we have in in social security but you know again i would point to you compare medicare from a, an efficiency standpoint to say commercial health insurance and it's the comparisons aren't even close medicare operates extremely efficiently there are i would say problems in medicare that we can dive into during this conversation as you like but to me this question of affordability is is not the right way to think about it and specifically the accusation or the the charge that social security is going bankrupt is actually nonsensical a federal program by definition can't go bankrupt in the sense that we think about that in the in the private sector i mean the government always has the ability to put money into the program and keep it keep it running and solvent so bankruptcy is not really a i don't believe a relevant concept for a federal program and let me add one more thing though you know it's important to acknowledge that social security right now is facing um, a financial shortfall. You can refer to it as a solvency issue, although it tends to put that word tends to put people into panic mode. And what here's what that problem is: is that Social Security is on track. The, the, the Social Security trust fund. If you think about the trust fund, is basically the checking account that's used to operate the program. So it's dollars in from FICA and a couple of other other sources, dollars out to pay benefits. That that checking account or trust fund has been running at an enormous surplus for the last several decades. And it's the trust fund is now starting to dwindle as for a couple of reasons. One is that as boomer retirements accelerate and they're drawing benefits is that's one reason. The other is the imbalance between the retired population and the working population. So we've had lower fertility rates in the United States for several decades, meaning there are fewer new workers coming into the system than there used to be. And so there's an imbalance there. And what that means is that come 2034 or 2035, the number fluctuates from year to year, the trust fund will be empty, which means that benefits will be paid strictly out of incoming revenue. And at that point, there will be enough money in the program to pay out 80% of the prom promised benefits flip that around, what we're saying is a 20% across the board benefit cut for everyone, which would be a disaster. I mean, that's that would be that's an outcome we don't want to get to. Now, uh, the good news is that's an eminently solvable problem. But, you know, that that is looming out there and it needs to be addressed by Congress. I, I think it will be because I cannot imagine any member of Congress wanted to go home and explain in their district why they allowed Social Security benefits to be cut across the board. 20%. That's not just future beneficiaries. That's like retirees living in their districts are going to be banging on the doors asking legislators why my check just went down 20%. So I think the chances of that happening are slim to none. There's a number of ways the issue could be addressed. But when we talk about these issues of affordability, bankruptcy, et cetera, et cetera, that issue is in play and it definitely needs to be addressed. So Mark, I could hear people listening to this saying, okay, fine. You know, there might be a 20% shortfall, but we can work our way around that. Healthcare costs are rising, but we can work our way around that. But you argue, especially in this last chapter, not only should we maintain this social insurance, but that we should expand it. Help me understand that argument that it's now's the time to actually expand. Right. right. I think it's a kind of a foreign sounding argument to some people. And I think you need to sort of step back and think about kind of the historical sweep of these programs and the way that the retirement system has evolved in the U.S. You know, we're, we're living in a certain kind of um, 
environment for these things right now. And I think it's easy to think it has always been so, therefore always will be so. But it's really, you know, since the 1980s, we've seen in particular, we've seen really the rise of kind of a private marketized approach to retirement solutions. Um, You know, the notion of individual solutions versus social insurance, which is something we do collectively as a society. And the emphasis has been on the individual. You know, I think it's kind of uh, neoliberal ideology and and economics, the idea that we're all on our own for doing retirement saving. We should have greater choice in the Medicare system, which has given rise to kind of a marketplace-driven approach for the way we select prescription drug coverage or even basic Medicare coverage in the Medicare Advantage program. And the focus on individual retirement saving versus, you know, pension. So, you know, pensions and social security, those are collectivized uh, risk pools, right? Whether that's a defined benefit pension in the workplace or it's a social security benefit, it's everyone contributing and then taking out uh, a benefit. Uh, I'm a fan of of those collective, collective approaches because I think the evidence shows that they work really well for, in, for the broadest number of people to provide a benefit. I think you know the the rise of the 401k and the and the IRA since the 1980s the evidence on that is that it's worked really really well for one part of our population which is the more affluent segment depending on whose studies you want to look at it's worked really great for anywhere from a third to maybe 40% of of households but for the rest of these uh, of Americans uh, who've not have not been able to save for retirement we very much reliant on on these social insurance programs. So that's the underlying kind of landscape and the reason why I th- I'm arguing for uh, you know a renewed focus on social insurance. You know, it's an interesting argument, this idea that social insurance is a very good thing, but it needs to be expanded. I feel like part of that also centers on this argument that as they stand right now, these programs somewhat do favor the affluent somewhat favor or somewhat disfavor people of color or even women in lots of ways and may be difficult on kind of those Gen Xers and millennials that are coming into retirement in later years. Talk about how currently these programs really focus, or I shouldn't say focus, but really seem to benefit wealthy America more than the rest. Well, I, I'd phrase it slightly differently. Let's talk about Social Security and uh, the populations you just talked about. It's not so much that they f- disfavor people of color or women. It's that those are populations that need a boost more for a variety of reasons. So in the case of people of color, we know that incomes tend to be lower. That means their ability to save for retirement is less. That means that uh, because their wage histories are somewhat depressed, that their Social Security benefits are less. Same for women. You know, it's been well documented that there's a wage, a gender wage gap. And so the proposals that have been circulated to expand Social Security in a targeted way, focusing on those populations, go after that and say, well, we, for example, we want to create a caregiver credit in Social Security because women tend disproportionately to take time out of the workforce to provide care for a child or for an aging parent. 
that depresses their wage history, that depresses their social security benefits. So one idea that's been proposed would recognize that and make an adjustment in the formula to say, we recognize the value of that work and we're gonna credit it. Just one example, one, one, could, one could give others. Your, your point about younger people is really interesting and I think worth diving into a bit. You know, there's this rhetoric out there that one of the rhetoric points uh, is we need to save Social Security so it'll be there for young people. Well, the people who make that argument, what they're really arguing for is cutting benefits. That's the cut benefits argument. Now, Social Security is already on track to provide less income replacement for today's younger generations than it than it did for, for mine and for older people. And for the benefit of your listeners, I'm 67. Sorry, 68. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I'm getting sold. I don't remember how old, how old I am. Um, and the reason that Social Security is replacing less income is that the, this has to do with reforms that were made in 1983. Many listeners probably know that the full retirement age to receive a benefit is rising. You know, it used to be 65 was the age at which you were entitled to re- receive 100% of what you earned. If you claimed earlier, you, your benefit is reduced. And if you claimed later, you could earn delayed retirement credits. Well, under that legislation, the full retirement age has been gradually creeping up and it stops at 67. Now, anybody born after 1960, their full retirement age is 67, which essentially raises the bar on what it takes to get the full benefit. You're going to wait longer to, to get that full benefit. And so, you know, that's a 15 to 20% cut in benefits for younger people. The rising cost of healthcare takes a bite out of benefits because part B premiums typically are deducted. Uh, there's more and more households are having their benefit subject to taxation, income tax, income taxation. So net net younger people are going to see lower replacement rates from Social Security than older generations. Expansion is one way to deal with that. But I think it's important for young people to know number not only that Social Security will be there for them, but that there's an equity issue here that I think should be addressed. So it, one way to deal with this in an expansion context, you know, it, it's that when we talk about Social Security expansion, we're not just talking about, oh, let's help out today's older people. There's a younger people have a stake in this as well. We are talking to Mark Miller. He is a journalist, author, and podcaster who is a nationally recognized expert on trends in retirement and aging. And we are talking about social insurance. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. 
Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Mark Miller, and his new book is titled Retirement Reboot, Common Sense Financial Strategies for Getting Back on Track. Mark, let's talk about some of the solutions. We're talking about the expansion of Social Security, maybe working on Medicare to make it more easy and reasonable for people. Let's start with Social Security. One of your suggestions is to modestly increase benefits for all across the board. We were just talking about the fact that, you know, this system right now serves the wealthy pretty well. Why would we want to increase their benefits? Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've talked about these targeted expansions in the previous segment, and I want to swing right back to that. But I wanted to also mention that another approach is to simply increase income rates, income, sorry, income replacement rates across the board. You know, if we want to think about the broadest possible creative approach to improving retirement security of Americans, we could say, hey, we want to make this program replace a lot more pre-retirement income than it did. So for example, one proposal out there would take low-income earners from a replacement rate of about 54% to 80%. You know, take medium earners, people with incomes around, you know, 60,000 a year from 40% to 70%. Take high earners from a replacement rate of 33% to 65%. Now, there's no reason we can't do that if we decide collectively as a society we want to do it. Social Security has been amended and improved hundreds of times since it was created in the 30s. So the idea that we need an incremental approach, it's not the only way. And there are ways to finance that sort of thing. As I said earlier, it's a 
from a question of values, not a question of, of affordability. We decide we want to identify revenue sources to make Social Security bigger and more important. That can be done. Now, swinging over to your question on more targeted increases. So, you know, one idea that, and, and these are all ideas, by the way, that were proposed specifically by Democrats during the 2020 uh, campaign cycle. Some of them are uh, out of sort of the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders camp, but some of them were ideas that President Biden proposed in his Social Security plan as well. So the, the candidates on the Democratic side, including the current occupant of the White House, have all have all uh, articulated plans for what they'd like to do. Now, one approach uh, is to increase, just have a modest benefit increase across the board of about uh, a couple percentage per, per percentage points, you know, basically $200 a month across the board increase. You know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it would be meaningful for low income people. Uh, a second idea that's been proposed is to make the annual cost of living adjustment more accurate and more generous. This is the topic that was uh, a big deal this past fall when we had a really historically large uh, cost of living adjustment or COLA in Social Security, 8.7% for 2023. And that sparked some conversations. Again, this is something that comes up periodically, which is to what extent is the COLA that we have now accurate? It reflects inflation, an inflation measure called the CPIW, which is the CPI for urban wage earners, basically is a market basket of goods that affects today's workers. And the idea of something more sensitive to the senior population has been discussed. There's a long-running alternative measure called the CPIE, the E standing for elderly, that is more sensitive to healthcare costs. Interestingly, so in some years, the CPIE rises at a faster rate than the CPIW, and in other years, it does not. And so it's not a perfect solution, but there is this idea running around out there that we ought to re-examine the way that we figure out the, the COLA. A quick side note on the COLA that I think is worth mentioning in the context that we're discussing here about expansion, we didn't always have an automatic cost of living adjustment. It's one of the most important benefits in Social Security, but we didn't have an automated cost of living adjustment until 1975. Before that, Congress would sort of sporadically make increases in benefits um, generally every couple of years, and it was really kind of an up and down process. Since 1975, we've had this automatic formula, which I think people kind of take for granted at this point, but it's a really important, super valuable aspect of Social Security. And fundamentally, this kind of COLA adjustment is something that you really can't get anywhere else. You can't buy it. You know, it's impossible to buy this sort of protection, for example, in the annuity market. People talk about the stock market as a as a hedge against inflation. It's not literally a hedge. I mean, in many years, the market runs ahead of, of inflation. Sometimes it doesn't. And of course, there's a lot of built-in risk in the stock market. So as opposed to a guaranteed automatic um, COLA that keeps you even with inflation. So the call is another one where there, there could be a, a targeted uh, expansion. Another idea that I think is interesting would be an improvement in benefits for widows and widowers. You know, so in Social Security, if you're you're married um, and your spouse dies, that you you can 
receive a survivor benefit that's equal to 100% of the deceased spouse's benefit. And in some cases, many cases, that's an increase in the benefit uh, if the surviving spouse's benefit was less than the deceased spouse's benefit. But when you think about it from a household standpoint, that death reduces overall household Social Security payments as much as half. And so some of the reform plans have called to address that by allowing to survivors to collect uh, a per certain percentage of the total household benefit. Biden proposed allowing survivors to collect 75% of the total household benefit. Uh, we mentioned earlier the idea of creating a caregiver credit. That's another kind of targeted idea. Uh, another one that I think is quite interesting would be to reduce the early claiming reduction. So we, we talked about this a little bit earlier that you know the amount that you receive depends on when you claim and it, your monthly amount goes up or down depending on whether you claim a certain amount of time before your full retirement age or later. And the formula for those early reductions and delayed retirement credits go back to the 1950s. And uh, they're designed to be what's called actuarially fair. In other words, you should wind up with the same total benefit over your lifetime, no matter when you file, if you assume average longevity. But over the years, the underlying actuarial factors have changed and interest rates have fallen. And importantly, life expectancy is higher. And that last point, much, much more so for people who have high incomes. And so the net of this is that the delayed credits for filing after your full retirement age have become too generous for the various higher, highest earners from an actuarial standpoint, because they tend to outlive the average mortality and they're reaping the highest extra benefit. But the reductions for claiming early are too big and they should be reduced. We should make it less of a penalty for people to need to file early. It's be especially helpful for older workers who find themselves forced into early retirement by, let's say, a job loss or a health problem. During the pandemic, many people who were older had to, had to leave the workforce, some permanently. So uh, making a change like this could have a, a really profound impact. A targeted change that would have an interesting and I think salutary effect on people with higher benefits would be to uh, reduce the amount of tax that we collect on benefits. So just like private pensions, a part of your social security benefit that's received is counted as taxable income over a certain threshold for federal income tax purposes. And so you could eliminate uh, some of the, some of the taxation by changing the thresholds. And, uh, you know, that would be a good thing to do. Interestingly, the, the thresholds are not, unlike almost every other part of our federal income tax system, the, the thresholds are not adjusted for inflation. And the intent of Congress when they created that, the tax in 1983, was to gradually over time bring more households into the, the uh, taxable uh, bracket, if you will. But you know, a way to uh, improve benefits for higher earners would be to reduce taxes. And uh, the last one I'll mention is improving benefits for very low-income earners. There's a what's called a special minimum benefit for people who've worked for many years at low income, but it's become almost meaningless because it's pegged to consumer inflation rather than being indexed for wage growth. So 
there have been several plans that have been put out there calling for an updated minimum benefit to improve the lives of uh, of people who are very low income. Uh, those are just some of the the ideas that are out there, uh, you know, for a very broad expansion versus more targeted. I want to transition from talking about Social Security to Medicare for a moment. We've talked about ways to expand Social Security. Let's focus on Medicare. First and foremost, is it too complex and why <laughs> is this a problem? It is so complex. And of all the topics that I've been, I've been writing about retirement for about 15 years now, and I think Medicare hands down to me is the most complicated topic. And that's for several reasons. One is that the transition into Medicare when you retire comes with some interesting and complex and tricky issues. And then on top of that, once you've enrolled, it makes sense for people to uh, do a checkup on some parts of their coverage, if not every year, certainly every couple of years, because of the way we've kind of introduced this kind of privatized marketplace-driven approach. So for example, in the Part D prescription program, you sign up for a plan, you know, a certain plan this year because it's a good match for the prescriptions you take. Uh, but that plan might change what's called the formulary or the list of drugs that are covered and under what terms from year to year. And so it makes sense to recheck your list, you know, your list against your plan every year. And the same is true in, if you're enrolled in Medicare Advantage, which is sort of this um, kind of all-in-one commercial alternative offering to the Medicare program that wraps in everything into one package. The trade-off is you are agreeing to be part of a, a managed care network. Well, the the list of providers can change really at any time. So you're, you're the doctors you want to see may be in the plan when you first sign up, but not, not later. And because many of these plans wrap in prescription drug coverage, that same ish set of issues that I was describing a minute ago related to prescription drugs uh, can also pop up in Medicare Advantage. And last but not least, when you sign up for Medicare, if you go into regular traditional Medicare, you're also going to want to add a, a Medigap supplemental plan. So that's another shopping chore. So there's, you know, it's a great, great program. Um, surveys suggest that people on Medicare are very, very happy with the coverage. I'll just, on a personal note, I enrolled in Medicare myself for the first time a year ago, and I've never been happier with my health insurance. I'm enrolled in traditional Medicare, used to be on uh, my wife's plan at work because I'm an independent, you know, independent uh, freelance worker. And so I was in, you know, your typical kind of PPO commercial employer plan that had came with all the, you know, jumping through hoops when you needed something, uh, prior authorizations, denials of care. Uh, in original Medicare, you know, you see a healthcare provider and once a month, you get a summary of what was covered from Medicare. And I open up the the document and it says Medicare covered this, Medicare covered this, Medicare covered this. It's just like I died and went to health insurance heaven. <laughs> so I just want to assure people that while there's some complexity in the sign-up process, you're going to be happy once you get on it. And I'll just say probably the biggest headline I can give people, I, I have a bias here and I explain it in my chapter on Medicare enrollment. I really urge people to lean towards signing up for traditional or original Medicare 
rather than Medicare Advantage, if at all possible. Yeah, I mean, that's like the original split in the road, right? So if you're on the Medicare path, the first thing you have to decide is traditional Medicare versus Medicare Advantage. Talk about the nuances of this decision. I can't overemphasize this point. I'm glad you asked about this. So when you first sign up for Medicare, you're, you're, which here's the process. You're going to sign up for Part A and Part B. That's very straightforward. You log on to the Social Security website and and and, and enroll. And you may not do that at the same time, but you're going to law. You're going to you're going to most like most people are at age 65. They're going to enroll in Medicare, so they sign up for Part A for Part B. Once that's done and you've received your Medicare card, you have this choice of whether you want to stick with the original program or roll in Medicare in the Medicare Advantage plan. And while you can change that choice in subsequent years, like open enrollment is goes on every mid-October to early December. And one thing you can do if you're in Medicare Advantage is disenroll in that and shift to original, original Medicare. But, and this is an enormous caveat, when you first sign up for Part B, you have a window for what's called guaranteed issue of a Medigap plan, meaning that during this window, Medigap insurance insurers must take you. They can't uh, turn you away for pre-existing condition. And they have to enroll you at the most favorable rate. If you come back later after that window and want to move into original Medicare and get a Medigap, you may be able to get one. And you may not be able to get one depending on your health status, cost factors come into play. And a lot of people don't understand this. So it's a critical decision when you first enroll. You know, from my perspective, I would say start with original Medicare. You know, if you decide later you want to move into an Advantage plan, okay, but you've you've given up an important right to get a Medigap, uh, guarantee, I should say, to get a Medigap when you first sign up. So this is a really important decision. The other thing that comes into play for some people when they first sign up is that, you know, we have more people now working longer, which means working past age 65. 65 is the age at which you should be signed up for Medicare unless you are still on an employer insurance plan. You know, the the much reviled um, ACA mandate, mandated coverage, fundamentally was modeled on the, the idea of a mandate that does exist in Medicare. You must sign up for Medicare at 65 if you're not on some other insurance uh, from an employer, uh, unless you want to pay stiff late enrollment penalties. And let's talk about what those late enrollment penalties are. The late enrollment penalty in Part B, uh, outpatient services, B as in boy, is 10% of the standard Part B premium for every 12 months that you are late. And that is a lifetime penalty. So let's say you're two years late. You pay 20% additional for Part B for the rest of your life. You run the numbers on that and you can see that it's significant. Now, the exception to it is if you are still actively employed after age 65 by an employer who is providing your insurance, when it comes time to enroll in Medicare, you, there's a form you submit to Medicare that says, you know, I'm age 67, but I had this insurance. The employer signs the form, you submit it. The employer signs the form saying, you know, acknowledging, you know, that you have this insurance and then there's no penalty. But, you know, this is another little wiggle in the road that 
is worth knowing about. I think the Medigap thing, the late penalties and uh, this importance of making this choice between original and advantage are the three biggies when it comes to uh, that initial point of Medicare enrollment. Yeah, the program is just too complicated. Uh, you know, I and I argue in the social insurance chapter that we could simplify. There's really nothing spelled out that says we have to have this privatized market marketized approach. For example, prescription drugs could just be a standard benefit in the Medicare program, as opposed to something you have to shop for plans every year. The Medicare Advantage program, you know, there's a there really needs to be more of a public debate about how much we want this kind of privatization of the the core program. Uh, advantages up to about half of all Medicare enrollees at this point. And there's been a growing body of evidence suggesting that, you know, I just think in many respects, it's a scam. You know, I think commercial insurance companies are getting very, very rich through, I think, a, a gaming of the system. You know, the New York Times published a big investigation late last year exposing how uh, these insurance companies are basically exploiting Medicare for billions of revenue through the way that they play with the way they code uh, procedures, so-called upcoding in the systems. So they are using that to boot, to bolster the revenue they're receiving. And meanwhile, on the other side, they play games with enrollees through things like prior authorizations and denials of care. So, you know, I, I think there needs to be a more robust public debate about the, the ongoing privatization of Medicare that's going on before our eyes. And you know, I'd like to see it stopped. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. People don't realize that this privatization is fairly new, right? I mean, Medicare yeah. Advantage didn't exist a bunch of years ago. And didn't the Part D legislation also affect the privatization? Yeah, yeah so Part D was created in 2005. Uh, we didn't have a drug benefit before this. So the good news is we do have a drug benefit and it's, you know, it's a reasonably robust benefit. There are some, there are some big gaps and problems in Part D, which are being addressed right now by the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year. We can circle back to that. The, the Inflation Reduction Act plugs some, some holes in the Part D plan, but yes. So we've had that benefit since 2005. And the Medicare Advantage program really kind of has really accelerated and grown a lot in the last decade. It didn't really exist uh, in any meaningful way much before uh, the decade of the 2000s and into the decade of the 2010s. Uh, and it's grown tremendously as a result of some legislative changes that were made that made it a more attractive option for people to sign up. So I want to bring this all together. We've been talking about all the good that the expansion of Social Security and reform of Medicare could bring. Why do you think there's such political opposition to expanding these programs? Well, it's interesting. I think let's let's look first at the Democratic Party. I would say that the Democrats have moved left on this on these issues, particularly Social Security, over the last ten years, if you if you cycle back to the Obama years, uh, the Obama administration actually signaled its openness to some fairly conservative ideas about Social Security. For example, in the famous grand bargain negotiations over federal budget reform, Obama threw on the table the idea of a reducing the annual Social Security cost of living adjustment using something called the chain CPI. And that never came to pass. But it's an example of kind of where 
Democrat the Democrats were at that point kind of in a more centrist or even center right posture on Social Security. Expansion of Social Security first came on the scene, I believe, 2013, uh, when uh, progressive advocates, uh, chiefly led by Bernie Sanders, came out and said, no, we, we don't want to cut Social Security, we want to expand it. It's a kind of a cuckoo idea at the time. I mean, nobody really gave it much, much credence, but it, they kind of kept hammering at it. And over time, the window kind of shifted to the left of kind of where the party is to the point where almost every candidate in 2020 including Biden, kind of the more, most centrist of them all, had plans of one type or another to expand Social Security. So the Democratic Party, generally speaking, is on board with it. You know, it hasn't, there's several solid uh, legislative proposals in the Senate and the House. The House could pass a bill with no trouble, uh, at least in the last session, I should say. You know, the, the expansion legislation uh, is co-sponsored by almost every Democrat in the House. My guess as to why it hasn't been brought to the floor for a vote is that um, it, it would put Democrats on the record voting for a tax increase. And I think, you know, Speaker Pelosi's worry probably is she didn't want to create a vulnerability in, in re-election situations for House Democrats, knowing that the plans would be dead on arrival in the Senate. So it's kind of a futile exercise to pass the bill in the House when you know there aren't the votes to overcome a filibuster on the Senate side. So it's been stuck. And, you know, everybody in the policy community knows that 2035 is is out there ticking away. And all these plans, I should mention, do two things. They address solvency and they, they address expansion. So, you know, you do both of those things at once. And addressing solvency is important because of what we discussed earlier. You're averting a 20% across the board benefit cut, uh, something that has to be averted, you know, at all costs. So it's out there. It's going to happen at some point. You know, <laughs> the closer the deadline gets, I think actually the less likely it is that we see benefit cuts as part of the solution. And that's just math because the closer you get to it, the harder it is to put the program back into balance simply through cuts. And so there's going to be some some kind of injection of new revenue, whether that is an increase in FICA rates, uh, an injection of some new form of general revenue. I, I think there's any number of ways to solve it. I, I actually think, and this may be of interest to your audience, Jordan, I actually think one of the smartest things we could do for the long-term health of Social Security would be to allow the trust funds to invest some portion of its assets in the equity markets. You know, by law, Social Security must invest its its assets in the trust fund portfolio only in a, a special issue treasury bond that pays, you know, what treasury bonds pay. Um, if you said by law, you know, Social Security, you can over time shift some of your assets, maybe up to, say, 25 percent into equities, it would provide a significant boost to the Social Security trust funds finances and being in that sense, no different than any defined benefit uh, pension plan, which of course invests in a wide array of, of assets. So, you know, there's a number of ways to solve those problems. We just need the right uh, sort of political moment to, to get it done. Well, Mark, I wanted to thank you for coming on this show today. It really drives this idea home to me that we always focus on this on being a fiscal issue, but maybe we shouldn't. 
maybe this is an ethical issue and we have to decide whether we have the political will to change things or not. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life. And if people want to know more, how can they reach out to you? So first and foremost, what is going on with Mark Miller? <laughs> so, you know, this year I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about the book. I continue to write for uh, on retirement for the New York Times, Reuters, Morningstar, wealthmanagement.com. Got a lot of other things going on in my life. And um, one is, you know, I'm very involved in the local community news movement in um, our hometown of Evanston, Illinois. I, uh, in the leadership team, trying to revive our local community paper as a nonprofit. <clears throat> I have a grandchild in Washington, D.C., so we're spending more and more time traveling to visit our one-year-old uh, plus grandchild. Uh, I'm a musician. I'm involved in all kinds of things at the Old Town School of Folk Music here in Chicago, including a band that I play in. I play guitar and banjo, so more time to music. I think you know, over the next couple of years, I'll probably start dialing it down a little bit on the amount of the quantity of writing I do on retirement. I don't anticipate stopping, but I still have a really active uh, deadline schedule from just from a quantity standpoint, and maybe it'll be a little less of that over time. Um, you can get in touch with me through my website, retirementrevised.com. Uh, you can DM me on Twitter, uh, Retire Revised, but probably the easiest way is uh, using the contact form on the website, retirementrevised.com. And you can find more information about the book there as well. The book is Retirement Reboot, Common Sense Financial Strategies for Getting Back on Track. It is available where all fine books are sold, and I highly suggest you check it out. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Mark Miller. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Awesome. I love that conversation. Me I too. Think it's, I think Was it's that okay such... the way we did the end there where I said thank yeah, you? Is don't worry about it. A glitch? Yeah. No, don't worry yeah, about no, it. Yeah, no, thank you. The great questions. Uh, let me really rave most of the key points. Yeah, I, I, I mean, like I said, I, I, I liked the whole, and I shouldn't say I liked, I thought the whole book was excellent, but I fell in love with the last chapter. <laughs> no, I was excited to hear you wanted to focus on that. I hope a lot of yeah. the interviews will because... Uh, it's between you, me, and the wall. I actually had wanted to write a book just about that topic. Yeah. And yeah. Um, couldn't make it go for a bunch of reasons. And then I started rethinking. It. I thought, well, I, I think this kind of focus is better anyway. And then I can just do a chapter at the end. And I loved the idea of sort of, you know, what's the word? Like in a 180 degree turn at the end of the book mm-hmm. to a chapter that was not nuts and bolts and advice, but say, Let's talk about something else. And, you know, I wanted to make that point that I talk about at the beginning of the chapter, which is, you know, I, readers often write to me and say, well, what, what's going to happen when they do this to me? Yeah. When they do this to my benefit and say, you have a voice in this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like, um, I feel like you were able to sprinkle the hints and the ideas of the last chapter throughout the book so that it fit very comfortably. 
um, which is always hard to do, right? It's very hard yeah. to go from nuts and bolts to philosophy. Um, but right. I feel like you you warned us it was coming. You sprinkled the ideas in. So by the time right. we got there, we were ready for it. And, you know, the nice thing with the book is opposed to, you know, what you can get away with in an article in the New York Times is you can just say, hey, here's what I think about this. You know, and I try to say, look, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've done thousands of interviews. This is kind of where I come out on these issues straight up. And I've, I've written about a lot of these things. I've written about the issues in Medicare Advantage and Social Security expansion. But you just be able to say in a book format, this is where we got to go with this. You know, just, just distill it, boil it down. Or even like the build savings chapter, I just say, if you're intimidated by this, just do these three things, you know, yeah. go to Vanguard, get into an index fund, do a Roth IRA, done. <laughs> the other thing that I think you did well, which is always very difficult, is I feel like you gave credence to the social justice issues without having it take over the book. Right. So I felt like you were able to bring these ideas in, but they fit where they were. And that it 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 added as opposed to felt like it was overtaking the book. And I think that's oh, a ve- very hard mix. Yeah, great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate it. I thought it was a great read. And, and yeah. you know, I've done enough of this. The last thing I want to do is like right. read another retirement book. But I yeah. I, I definitely enjoyed it and, well, and thank you. felt like it was a great read. So As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.